This is the Boots on the Ground Healthcare Podcast. Warning, this show contains graphic descriptions of life and death situations by people who experience them. The opinions of the host and the guests of this show are their own. Names of patients and patient identifiers are omitted or changed in accordance with HIPAA laws. All right, so we finally made it. (laughs) After all of this, you know, planning and working everything out, finally actually sitting down to talk about stuff. Yeah, Um, awesome. So tell me your name. Krista Whitmer. And what do you do? I am a nurse. Um, I currently work in urgent care. Okay. Urgent care company. And so what was, so walk me through your, your history of going to becoming a nurse. Sure. Um, so I had been, um, sorry, I'm going to say, um, probably too much. Um, I had been in high school. I was trying to decide what career path to take. I had probably about five or six different ideas in mind. I ended up going with nursing because it would have been the hardest major to get into. And so I went with nursing first, decided if I would change my mind later, it would be easier to get out of it than to try to get into it. And so I went to Messiah College, now Messiah University. And um, I don't know if that's, hopefully that's Yeah, no, no, that's good. That's good. So Um, um, you went to, you know, obviously nursing school. Yeah. And it was a total grind. Yes. Uh, how was your experience in, in nursing school? Yes. Like, so nursing you school. you feel like you were going to die? Like, yes. The whole time. <laughs> I did. And actually, I purposely made sure that I didn't live with other nursing students. Oh. I lived with, <laughs> I lived with, always lived with people who were not also nursing majors. Although I had a, a lot of friends who were nursing majors, obviously being in classes with them all the time. Um, I felt like I needed a break from it when i wasn't in class so, so. all your, your roommates were like oh, that Krista yeah. girl, so all my roommates were constantly asking me hey can you come with us can you come do this can you come do that and some of the time i could but a lot of the time i just stayed right. back and i had to study because <laughs> that's how nursing everybody's school going is. to school for communications <laughs> and they're like <laughs> right exactly <laughs> <laughs> so i was constantly back in our apartment or dorm room studying sometimes at the library or wherever else, but it was, um, yeah, quite a grind, very difficult. Um, I, one semester, spring of junior year, I wasn't sure if I was going to actually pass. Mm. Um, it, the grade and passing relied on, I think four or five test scores. And so it was very challenging, a very challenging semester. Um, so that was, it, that was just, it was just very difficult. School was difficult. When I was in high school, I was straight A's, 4.0, top, I think, 10% of the class just because I went to a school where everyone was overachievers. So wow, wow. <laughs> with a 4.0, I was top 10%. But, nice. um, but when I went Humble to <laughs> – When I was in um, college, it was just very – nursing school was very, very challenging. So um, it was a great school, great place to um, – learn how to be a nurse right, right. great was place that, for clinicals was four years or was it it was four years yep it was okay. four oh, years wow. so okay. yeah so you got your bachelor's, so right, bachelor's off the right off the bat and which was great i was glad that i did it that way and so when i came out of school came out of college i studied for my boards and i ended up um working 
for that summer, studied for about two months, took my boards, and um, applied to a bunch of places. Got in with a hospital setting, a rehab, inpatient rehab setting, just for several months just to get my foot in the door. Once I did that, I ended up um, transferring to a medical cardiac telemetry unit. I was on that unit for three years. And had a lot of patients, a lot of patients. That was a very challenging uh, area to work in. It was in a city environment. Um, But it was great because it was great experience. And I was able to get a lot of learning and experience under my belt. So I had, I would say we had a a wide range of patients. Mm -hmm. And I later realized that the types of patients I had were patients that in other hospitals would have been ICU patients. Oh, really? <laughs> we had five or oh, six wow. of them at a time, seven at night. So it was very challenging. Your nurse ratio, what year was this? I was, this was in 2009 to 12. 2009, wow. And your nurse ratio then was seven on yeah, nights? overnight, yeah. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> and some of those patients were telemetry Right. Patient. I mean, they're all telemetry patients, but some were For, accurate telemetry patients, and some in some hospitals would have been ICU patients on drip, multiple drips, multiple cardiac drips, multiple. For I people mean, not in healthcare, can you walk us through what telemetry is? Sure. Yeah. So telemetry is a unit where everyone has a heart monitor on. So everyone has five leads, sticker leads hooked up mm-hmm. to them, and they have a little box that the leads are and wires are connected to. And that box monitors their heart rate and rhythm, and it sends that message out to a main person who's monitoring everyone. So if anything goes wrong, um, the person who is the mon- basically monitor tech right, right. is handling and looking Just at following along and all of the rhythms. Hopefully catching everything. Exactly. So that was an, a really neat place to work. I love cardiac rhythms and I love cardiology in general. So that's great because it's like the one area I suck at. <laughs> I know Perfect. I know all the big ones, but like every single time I would have ACLS, I would have to like <laughs> go over the uh, the blocks, yeah. the heart yeah. blocks, like and then like Mobitz one, two, whatever, yes. and like all of that. I'm like, okay, I'll know it for ten seconds. Forget it immediately. <laughs> And then, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> you only need it for a few seconds to learn to right. have yeah. for the testing. So for that right. class. But yeah, I always loved cardiology. Um, and actually, that's funny because respiratory was not was not my thing. <laughs> so <laughs> it works out. Um, but I, um, I ended up, there was, we saw a lot. I think I saw, one of the most interesting things I saw on that unit was a, um, a period of time, 13 seconds, where someone's heart stopped beating. Mm -hmm. Um, So they had a pause. We called it a 13-second pause. (laughs) What did you say? I said not from adenosine. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So adenosine would have been much better because you would have planned that. But this was just a – just yeah, everyone went rushing into the room, and it's just how, how it goes. But um, but thankfully, their heart was went right back into rhythm. So it's it wasn't they didn't code or anything. We had a ton of codes, so oh, wow. I learned a lot about yeah, yeah, yeah. that end mm-hmm. of things. Um, being on that unit, just a wide variety. I mean, we had 
any we had an overflow onto that unit from mm-hmm. everywhere. So we had we had patients who were kidney transplant patients. We had um, a lot of heart uh, heart failure, okay. uh, congested okay. heart failure. Um, so we had a lot of those patients. We had that includes like respiratory devices too, like BiPAP and and mm-hmm. like maybe high flow. I don't know if high flow was a thing then. High flow, I don't think was really a okay. thing at the time. Actually, um, yeah, it probably wasn't. Yeah, we didn't. I didn't start seeing a whole lot with high flow until I worked at a different hospital, mm. um, down closer to um, the Philly suburbs, mm, Philadelphia. Okay. So, um, so we started to see a little bit more of that then. That would have been several years after. Um, but yeah, there were some on BiPAP, um, a lot of, yeah, just a wide variety, a lot of dialysis patients, mm-hmm. um, a lot of diabetic insulin dependent patients. So we had insulin does. drips, which are oftentimes just an ICU thing. We had mm. that on oh, our really? floor. Okay. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it was a really interesting place. Um, we also had some overflow from tox, toxicology too. So mm. So we'd have some people, sometimes if the tox unit was too full, we'd have, um, we'd have people overflowing onto our unit who were drug overdoses and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, so it was a big range of people. We yeah, got to right. see a lot. So was um, that considered IMU or no? It would be at most, at most places, most hospitals. At like that now, hospital, like... it was cardiac telemetry, mm-hmm. but right. it would be basically a step down unit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we had... Uh, it was about a 27, I think it was 27 or 30 bed unit. Mm. And the downfall was that our assignments could be, they tried to kind of keep us in pods, but our assignments could literally be spread out. I could have one patient on one end of the hall and then one the whole way, 27 rooms down. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. So, (laughs) and then you have seven to, you know, five to seven patients on top of that. It was crazy. It was crazy. Oh my God, I got VTAC (laughs) over here in 17. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. So, um, so that was a really good place for experience while I was working there. I was able to get some experience with doing clinical instructing mm-hmm. for med surge, medical surgical clinical instructing. Um, did you have to, uh, precept anybody or, or, or like do precepting yeah. like as a whole or anything? Or yeah. Like- so I would have groups of six to eight students coming through for the college I was doing it for. Um, it was a bachelor's program for nursing. Mm-hmm. And we would have, I would get two groups of students per semester. And we, it was something that I did on the side. I loved Mm -hmm. it. It was great to train new nursing students Mm -hmm. on telemetry and medical surgical, which is just a general floor of nursing. So where you see a lot of a mixture of things, but people aren't on monitors there. So we, I did training on um, a rehab unit and medical surgical telemetry units Mm -hmm. for the nursing students, yeah. So I did that at the same time that I was working for the hospital. And then also in there, at some point, I had a third job where I started per diem, which is just very much on the side, working for the urgent care company that I work for now. Okay. I started oh, wow. with... Oh, did all three at the same time? Yeah. <laughs> there was some overlap there Ooh. for a little bit. Not for long. I think there was uh. just a couple months where I was overlapping uh, a little bit. But but yeah, we ended up um, doing... I had a few months where I did th- the three jobs. And then I just ended up doing 
leaving the hospital for a little bit, just working for the urgent care. And I was working full time for them in nurse training. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of travel involved regionally for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was training the nurses coming in, whether they were seasoned nurses, new nurses, whatever. Just to get them acclimated. Just to, like... to get them used to the company's policies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so I did that for a while. Uh, two years doing that full time. And then I just got kind of burnt out with it. It was just a lot with a lot of travel, um, a good amount of hours. And I think the travel is just really tiring. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Back and forth, all those areas. All over the place. So we were getting a lot of new centers Mm. um, up and running in our region. And so... This is the urgent care. Yes. So we would get several nurses in per center opening Mm. and so each of those nurses needed their own training so it was just a lot of training a lot of travel a lot of a lot of that sort of thing so when you have to train a nurse like everybody is all the nurses basically have like a degree in nursing Mm -hmm. but what kind of training do you have to do to bring them up to speed yeah so they have to do obviously they're they have to make sure that they're up to speed with cpr acls pals in our company, you have to do PALS, which is a pediatric advanced life support. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so those are the three things that they have to do. Those weren't necessarily things. I did do CPR classes, but that wasn't what we did in our training. In our training, we had to train them on the computer system, train them on our policies regarding medications, mm. train them on triaging patients, train on on drawing blood, even though that's not something that the nurses typically do they had to be cross-trained to be able to cover for other areas Mm -hmm. so the medical assistants typically will triage the nurses had to be trained to do that and we often actually do jump in and do that they if the lab's backed up then we need to um, jump in and do blood draws for the lab Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, or covid swabs or um, other strep swabs different things like that so so they have to be trained to do thing, cross-trained to do things for other areas, trained on phone calls. Phone calls are actually a big thing oh, really? um, in the urgent care company that mm. I have to work, that I work for. Um, the reason why it's a big thing is because it's mainly a very administrative role. We do have emergency patients come in where we have to think on our feet and obviously do what we need to do to get them transferred to the hospital so in the in the urgent care sphere mm-hmm. like do people think that it's like a hospital people, or like an emergency room or like i've never worked in one uh i don't really know like i, I think i've only w- ever gone to one like one time mm-hmm. something with like my son or something mm-hmm. um but obviously i work in a huge ed mm-hmm. so um What's what's it like when you have patients coming in with an emergency and you're like, oh, God, you have to actually go to the hospital. <laughs> so it's it it depends on the situation. It can get really interesting. The front office staff typically will let us know when there's something that's more urgent or an emergency type situation. They'll call back to the nurses and say, hey, you need to come check this out or please get them back sooner than later or. They'll say, can we bring them back and register them in the back so you can see them right away? So we'll usually kind of just all jump in together as a team and try to figure out what's going on and what needs to happen. The doctors have a major role at the company where I work at, so they end up in in the room kind of running everything as well. Mm. So they basically 
a lot of times we'll have we'll have patients come in with heart attacks. We have patients come in with all sorts of things that should be in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But so some people, to answer your question, some people do think that it is more of an emergency room. And sometimes it kind of can be. We can do everything from IV antibiotics to x-rays, labs right there on the spot. Mm-hmm. But... Like, could you run like a full ACLS protocol? We could run most of an ACLS protocol but we would have the EMS team on call ready to come. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, like, so could you intubate somebody? We, the, our doctors could. Okay. So yeah. our doctors, we have had that happen actually. Um, so you could have somebody come in with like uh, anaphylaxis or something, like like so, like a bee sting or something. Absolutely, that happens and all the time. And then you know it just goes worse yep. as they're there. Yep. And you have to you know immediately just you know, drop what you're doing and actually maybe like intubate. Right. Yeah. Just to secure an airway. Yeah. So we have, we have a good amount of people come in with allergic reactions Hmm. and we, I think. Is the thing anaphylaxis by the way or did I get that wrong? (laughs) It can turn into anaphylaxis. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. It can. So, so if someone comes in with a sting, um, or sometimes it's a food reaction. Okay. Sometimes, for whatever reason, we had a, a whole slew, I think it was last summer, of several people in one month who came in with a food reaction. They had never had a food reaction before, and they came in mm. and said, I have no idea what I'm reacting to, but my throat feels like it's itchy. Oh, and God. so, um, or they were having swelling or facial swelling, different things. Obviously, there's different signs of an anaphylactic reaction, but we had a whole bunch of them in a month or two period of time, and they were it was all brand new, not previous. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's gonna be weird. It was very strange. So, so I haven't seen it since then, <laughs> but we had a lot of them all at one Some time. Grocery so. store like a bad batch of wheat or something. <laughs> I have like no or something. Idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I don't know why people. It, you know, we had so many at one time, but for that, we do the doctors, the doctors will order everything. So the nurses are just following the doctor's orders. Mm-hmm. And so they, we have several medications on hand that so, we can use. So at an urgent care, how many uh, physicians are like on staff? Yeah. So it actually depends if it's a urgent care that's newer or um, maybe not as busy as some of the other centers. There might just be one on at a time, mm. a physician assistant or a doctor on um, at a time. And then typically we have one nurse, one medical assistant, one x-ray tech, um, one um, lab tech, and then two mm. people in the front office. That's bare bones staff. Mm. If you are at a busier center, um, there is a very busy center actually in Pennsylvania in our company. Um, that's not too far from where you work. It's the busiest in our entire company. Hmm. They have four providers on at a time. They have three to four nurses on at a time, um, three to four MAs on at a time, medical assistants on at okay. a time, two people in the lab, I believe one to two in x-ray. They might still be at one in x-ray. Oh, wow. Three hmm. people in the front office. So it's so, so it, it yeah. varies. So it varies quite a bit. It varies, yes. So like okay, so what are those hours like? Obviously a hospital is twenty four seven all the time. Sure. Yeah. Uh an urgent care is probably like what? Like six in the morning so to like it 11 is, at night or something? Yeah, so our 
hours were 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Okay. For many, many, many years. And just in the last month or two, they decreased it to 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the amount of patients we we were seeing. Mm-hmm. So some of the centers were open half the night because of the amount of patients coming. Oh, wow. Um, and then they yeah. would just sit in there and then they just wait. So, and you're right. Like, oh so gosh. if they were signed in before 10 p.m., we would keep our doors open, obviously, until 10 p.m. Mm. And so then they might not get out till 2 in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, if they're coming in at 10 and we were really backed up. So so because of that, it and obviously with COVID patients and everything, we just ended up the last couple of months just getting really busy. So mm-hmm. because of that, they changed the hours from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then actually in the last couple of weeks since Christmas, they even had to start closing off registration and basically essentially closing the center mid-afternoon oh, wow. because of the oh, amount of patients right. we've been seeing. So Because people come in and they want to get tested. Yeah, and... exactly. So I wouldn't say that it was necessarily really severe stuff that we were seeing right. all at one time. It was a lot of cold symptoms. Just pure volume. But it was just volume. Yep, yeah, it was just volume. A lot of people needing tested. And so because of that, the hours changed once again. Um, but typically it is day and evening hours, not overnight. Mm -hmm. That's actually why they had to change the hours because it was becoming overnight. So urgent care isn't meant for that. So, so it basically urgent care is just, it's a mix of family medicine and some emergency medicine. And it's basically just a, it's there to offset the hospitals Mm -hmm. and it can be used really well in that way. A lot of people think that it is for emergencies. We mm-hmm. can handle some emergencies to an extent, but they'll get sent over to the hospital by ambulance. Right, by ambulance. Yeah. Right. So we see huh. a fair amount of that. Um, lots of injuries, variety. Right now, I feel like for the last few months, it's just been all COVID mm-hmm. testing and well, such. Sure. So some injuries um, scattered in there too. But but yeah, that's mainly Very been what we've been seeing. Yeah, exactly. So some pneumonia, obviously, um, we do see a fair amount of that. But mostly, you know, anything related to shortness of breath and cardiac issues and things like that will get sent over to the hospital. Do they uh, administer vaccines at the urgent cares? We do. Okay. Yeah, we... Like, does that include COVID and, like, kid shots and stuff like that? We do not do the COVID vaccine. Ah. Um, They had trialed it at one of our centers, but we haven't been... I'm not sure what happened there, to be honest. We just haven't... And I don't think the demand for it took off with our centers. Oh, so for whatever reason, reason actually have it on hand. They trialed it and then decided that they weren't going to pursue having all the centers doing it. Oh, they hmm. actually, I think, kind of pulled back and decided not to do it. I think many of the people were getting their COVID vaccines already through their family practices or through local pharmacies. Hmm. And so it just wasn't a need that our centers found that we needed to do. So hmm. so we haven't been doing that one, but we do. I think all the pediatric ones. So a lot of the times, unfortunately, we're the ones who where parents need to catch up their kids because mm-hmm. they haven't mm-hmm. been to a pediatrician or whatever. Mm-hmm. They'll bring us in and say, hey, kindergarten st- starts next week. Now we need four or five vaccines in oh, one time. Right, right. And that's like measles maybe. And right. Measles an RSV one? Um, there's not, but we'll, we have, there's, we don't do rotavirus. There's certain ones we don't do, 
But we do measles, mumps, rubella. We have varicella. We also have um, the DTAP for kids. We have What's DTAP? polio. DTAP <laughs> is it, it's diphtheria, um, tetanus, and pertussis. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, the adult version is the Tdap oh, okay. or the TD, which mm-hmm. is without pertussis. But okay. we have the DTAP one for kids. And that goes up to, I want to say, seven years old that they can get that one. We have polio. We have... I, just a whole bunch of like a whole bunch of them hepatitis a hepatitis b um some of the um hpv the um human papillomavirus mm-hmm, virus mm-hmm. one for adults we mm-hmm. and for teens we have that one there's a wide variety of vaccines that we have we also have a wide variety of medications we can do some iv medications we have a small pharmacy on site actually which is oh, pretty nice. cool. Yeah, it's a limited. It's under 100 medications, right. but we do have that as an option for patients. So basically the goal is to be a one-stop shop so p- patients can come in, see a doctor, get whatever treatment sure, and whatever sure. medication they need and head home and not have to go to the pharmacy, not have to go to get x-ray, not have to go to get blood drawn somewhere else. So, so. back when I was like, you know, six, mm-hmm. and your mom, my mom is like peddling me to the doctor's office. It was actually in Strasburg. Oh, like, really? <laughs> it was so funny it was like yeah what was that guy's name dr like stanky stanky something like that okay um yeah. anyhow it was right there on uh um like in strasburg this little uh family practice um they you know that that was just like our little family office right and you know you go there you get checked up for you know god knows what back when everybody had like paper files yeah like you know you go in and you check in and you can see behind the the lady at the check-in counter that like everyone's file in the borough was just there you know yes. a to z floor to ceiling um and then you go and sit and there's like random books and magazines in the waiting room and there's like a random guy like in the corner coughing and you're just sitting there in this box <laughs> and then you walk in you get like you know your height and weight because you're six they measure you and everything and then, you know, they listen to your lungs and, you know, they listen to your heart mm-hmm. and it's basically done. Mm-hmm. Does the urgent care, like, take that out of play then? Like, do those, like, do those, like, sort of, like, family practice things still exist? They do. Yes. So, so we, it's a good question because... People are always wondering if we're trying to take patients from family practice or not. And we basically are there for the outside of the normal hours of the family practice offices. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of kids later in the evening when they're when their regular doctors closed on the weekends because we're open every day of the year, um, including holidays and weekends. So because of that, um, we get a lot of the overflow from the hours that their offices are not closed. And then we often will refer them back to their pediatrician Mm. or back to their family practice. That's Mm. ideally what should happen because we are not equipped to be their family practice. We can do, you know, the assessment, their height, weight, all the things Mm. that they need for that visit. But it's better for them to go back to their family practice for the more continuous care their family practice doctor, pediatrician knows them. They know their history. We mm-hmm. don't. So oh, okay. they're just a blank slate for us so when we come in. So electronic charting, mm-hmm. is that, are you able to get that? We or? do electronic charting. However, we have our own system 
that is separated from hospital systems. Mm -hmm. So we, if we need a patient's chart from a hospital or from an office, we have to request that through fax or over the phone. Uh, um, that's kind of the... Kind of how it works. Yeah. I don't know. I get questioned every single day by patients whether we can't, why we can't use email and send them emails with their medical <laughs> records and things like that. So no. we just don't have the... Yeah, and we don't have the capability for any of that. We don't right. have that type of capability to have that encrypted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So we don't do that. That's a huge type of risk. Yes, a huge <laughs> type of risk. So, unfortunately, I'm constantly telling people, sorry, you need to come back to the center with your photo ID and pick up your records here, or you can send a form in and we can fax it to you, but no one has fax machines anymore. So, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's just kind of how it goes. But, um, so... So, yeah, ideally, we are kind of a mix for family and um, emergency practice, but we do try to get people referred back to their hmm. to their people, to their uh, family practice. So, we talked pre-record how yeah. you, um, how everything changed with COVID. Mm-hmm. And, like, you, you said that your, your job totally changed and that your, um, your sort of like work life totally mm-hmm. changed talk yeah. about that a little bit and let's see like, sure yeah so so to kind of connect from where i left off with my nursing journey to where i am now when i had worked for the urgent care company originally i was in their training department training nurses then I went back to the hospital for a little bit. Actually, I worked on a step-down unit, a progressive care unit. So we were, we had everything from trauma, surgical, um, medical, but the patient ratios were much better than the hospital I had worked in before, Mm. the unit I had worked on before. We had usually about three patients, sometimes four at the time. Mm. And... Sometimes they pulled us to ICU. Sometimes they pulled us to the ER. But most of the time we were there on that unit. I loved that unit. I really enjoyed working with those patients and their families. However, doing that and doing urgent care where I was also working two jobs at the same time at that point, I something had to give. So I, so I gave up the hospital again um, and ended up back in urgent care full time. When I went back to urgent care full-time, I was in quality assurance. So that changed. Basically, I wasn't doing as much with training anymore. I was working with quality assurance. So traveling to their centers and making sure that everything was running smoothly, checking on cleanliness, checking on charts, making sure that things were documented correctly, making sure that patients were being triaged appropriately and registered appropriately and things like that. So we made sure that the operations were of the centers were happening smoothly. So when COVID hit, we basically, actually, I could tell you, I was in, it was March of 2020. Mm -hmm. I was in Mm -hmm. New Jersey It was like March 18th of 2020. I was in New Jersey working on an inspection for a center of ours. And things were getting a little bit tricky with COVID at the time. So you had Um, known about COVID. We had known about COVID. We knew it was a thing. Mm -hmm. For about a week or two before this, 
they had basically backed off on the number of patients, a number of staff at the centers. Hmm. So they were going down to bare minimum staff. So anyone who wasn't essential, quote unquote, needed to be at home working or just not in the center for that period of time. Okay. So I was wondering for a while about about a week leading up to this day. I was basically wondering if and asking my boss, hey, are you sure you want me to drive the whole way out to New Jersey to do this inspection? Are they going to pull me? I just I don't know what's going to happen. And they kept reassuring me, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. You can go do this inspection. They haven't stated that we're not considered essential yet for the centers. Mm, okay. So I was literally in the middle of my day and my boss calls me and she's like, wait a second. Um, we need you to go home and you need to leave like within the hour. So. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so I drove out, drove out to New Jersey and was there for just a few hours. And usually it would be a whole day process. So I was halfway through my process and they sent me home. So. Um, so. Basically, at the time, they said, I think that this is just going to be for a week or two. We don't really know, but, you know, we can just do some of our work from home and we just don't want you in the centers right now. So was this because of like with the the like two weeks lockdown thing? Yeah. Or, okay. It was right around that time. I couldn't tell you the exact amount, the exact time, but it was right around then that everything was being locked down. Everything, everyone was going into quarantine. So because of that, they didn't they didn't want us there, um, in this in the centers doing the hands on work. We could right. do the behind the scenes stuff. They just didn't want us in the centers doing the work unless we were working as a nurse at the center. So once a week, I have to work as a nurse at at the center on you know the oh, floor okay, we okay. call it right. doing the hands on work. Mm-hmm. They like us to do that to stay up up, up on, to date, to date on, your on stuff. everything. Right. So so I so I do that, but. Otherwise, they have not. Actually, it's been almost two years now. Um, so the week or two turned into almost two years now that they haven't really had us back in the centers. Oh, we had, wow. yeah, we had one period of time this summer for just I think it was two or three months where they started trialing us back in, uh-huh. and we were kind of checking, but just very minimal. We were checking bare minimum things. The crash cart at the center, which has all of the emergency equipment and medications in it. We were checking medication documentation and the medications, making sure nothing's expired, things like that. Checking the pharmacy. Very bare minimum of what we usually check is what Mm -hmm. we went in to check over the summer. So, okay. So let's back up. Yeah. So let's go back to like March 2020. Yeah. And so you're having COVID just happened. Mm -hmm. The government's scrambling. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, media is all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are flooding like grocery stores. Mm-hmm. What was going through your mind when you first, like, like everybody kind of heard about like, oh, this disease is randomly populating mm-hmm. the world. Oh, there's cases. Oh, mm-hmm. oh there's a case in San Francisco or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's going through your mind as a nurse, mm-hmm. like when this is coming in and going on? Mm-hmm. So it was... I was watching it kind of closely. It would have been the very beginning of January. It was either December 31st or January 1st, somewhere around there of 2020, January 1st, 2020, where I was seeing all the information coming in the news media that there's this new virus outbreak in China. 
the Wuhan area. It had not traveled outside of that area yet. Mm -hmm. Or so it was thought at the time. Um, Looking back on it, I wonder how soon it was here because (laughs) was it already here before we knew about it? Because the reason is that with air travel the way it is and with how people travel throughout the world the way that they do and how quickly this virus tends to spread, I would be really surprised if it was only in that little area at that time. Right. Um, So basically at that time in... January, I was watching it kind of closely, wondering what's going to happen. I actually remember being on the phone with a friend and we were talking about it. And I forget, I, I didn't have a very positive outlook of, of when what was going to happen and when mm-hmm. it could be in the US. And he was actually working for the Olympics at the time. Oh, wow. And it was supposed to be in Japan that year. And he said, um, he said that I said, well, you know, that's really the virus is really close to Japan. Do you think that's going to have any effect on it? And this was back in February. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, no, I don't think so. I think they have it under con- pretty well under control, at least as far as we know. And so that was at the time. Obviously, that changed. They mm-hmm. didn't have the Olympics there in Japan that year. Um, but it was really interesting because I think on the on in my mind at the time, I was thinking, I think this is going to become bigger than what they're making it seem. Right. And so, and obviously that conversation alludes to that because I was thinking ahead. Are you sure they're going to have the Olympics in Japan? And you know, this right. summer. And he's like, Yeah, I think I think so. I think it'll be okay. So, so yeah, so we ended up, I think by March, it was kind of crazy because it was, I think the whole world just felt like it was just very fearful and everything stopped. Everything stopped and and everybody was afraid. Everyone was afraid. No one knew what to do. And so at all. So, I mean, I remember my parents coming over to my house and they were outside and they had their masks on. I got, I had my mask on. We're all scrambling to try to get N95s. <laughs> and because we knew that's the only thing that really worked with this right, virus, right. except it was confusing because the CDC at the time was saying to just wear surgical masks. Mm-hmm. So there, that was that beginning period of time where everyone's kind of trying to figure out what to do. Um, and so we knew that I think some of the studies actually coming out of China were showing that the N95 was working better for their hospital workers than mm-hmm. the surgical masks were. Mm-hmm. So fewer cases of people coming down with COVID with the ones wearing the N95s. So we were all trying to get N95s. And I remember being outside with my parents in the driveway. And I think it had already been a few weeks since the lockdown had started. Mm. And we were all trying to keep our distance and trying to <laughs> <laughs> trying to not not be inside and not be, you know, all together, not hugging and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I think by Mother's Day that year, my family and my husband's family were both like, screw this, we're done because this is like not, it was still, it was like the very end of the first, first like first first lockdown of like the two to three month lockdown lockdown or whatever. It was like the very end of that. Mm -hmm. And I think we were all just kind of done with it by then already. So, um, so, yeah, I think it was kind of scary. I remember driving back from New Jersey just being like, what is this going to turn into? 
You know, mm -hmm. this is very weird. I've never been sent home from work. Like, that's just strange. Right. Um. So I don't. Yeah, it was just really interesting. But. Yeah. So you know. for me, like um, it was it was totally weird because everybody else's life changed, but mine didn't. Mm -hmm. I kept going to work, mm -hmm. uh, kept treating people at work. Um, it was really interesting how they, um, like the idea behind masks and what masks we were going to do. Cause it evolved like at the drop of a hat. Um, from what I was able to gather online, uh, I was able to gather that, uh, N95s were, if nothing else, the best possible option. Right. So most hospital protocols and outbreaks go okay what's the best possible option here right so we were like all right well we're just gonna wear n95s all the time well then they decided to say that oh you don't need an n95 you can just wear a surgical mask and i was mm -hmm. like nope not listening to you mm -hmm. not listening to you that, i have a story not about that. listening yep. to mm -hmm. you yep and i was like that's cool um still gonna <laughs> not listen to you and they were like oh well and then there was this whole thing where uh Governor Wolf ended up stockpiling PPEs and N95s at the, um, what was it, the farm show complex. Mm -hmm. And they're actually still mm -hmm. there. I looked mm -hmm. into that a little while Is ago. Still? They're still, wow. yeah. I heard about that I earlier it's this year. still there. I know it, it definitely started. They definitely stockpiled a lot of stuff. Um, it was pretty wild. Wow. But um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. So uh, masks and PPEs were under... Um, you know, lock and key almost. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, I was able to like find my own stuff, mm -hmm. get my own little stockpile of a couple of masks because at this time we're using, you know, not reusable or we're using reusable masks. Yes, we were too. That were like not meant to be used more than mm -hmm. once. And like, mm -hmm. so for understanding sake, let's talk about like N95s pre-COVID were literally used one time for treatment of like a suspected tuberculosis patient. Mm -hmm. You gown up, you put on your N95, you do your little fit test thing to make yep. sure it's totally, you know, sealed. You go into the room, you don't breathe while you're in the room. And it was always you a pop negative on your pressure treatment. room too. Yes, a negative pressure mm -hmm. room also too. Mm -hmm. And then you, you know, scurry out of the room after you did your little task and you mm -hmm. go, okay, I can breathe now. <laughs> And you throw your mask in the trash and you're done with it. Mm -hmm. You have a whole box of them right there. And then that's the end of it. When COVID happened, there were no free masks, like just laying around anywhere. Yep. They were just gone. Yep. Couldn't find any. And we're, I remember walking around and just going like, okay, this is like a whole other thing. Like there's a different level of fear here and I don't mm -hmm. like it. Mm -hmm. um, and so as it morphed, um, they came out with this idea that we're just going to wear surgical masks. And like I said, I was like, I'm not doing that. Mm. Um, and they were like, oh, well, you know, if you have an N95, well, we're going to take it from you. I was like, <laughs> fucking not. <laughs> I'm six foot six, 200 pounds. I'll drop you. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up running up to one of our physicians early on and one of our pulmonologists. And I was like, hey, how is this transmitted? I don't know what's going on in the media. I don't mm -hmm. know what the news is. What are you hearing? Yeah. And he told me, like, it could be transmitted through... Well, it was suspected at the time that it could be transmitted through surfaces. Uh, any kind of mask that was exposed to... That would expose mucosa. Um, any sort of mucous membranes. Uh, any sort of thing, like your eyeballs. Mm -hmm. um, any of this. And you're just like, oh, wow. Like, I've never heard of a disease that could do anything like this. Mm -hmm. And it was just this whole other level where you're like, okay... 
Um, a lot of our staff got sick with COVID like right away Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they were all wearing surgical masks. Mm -hmm. I was working right beside these people wearing my N95 Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting there watching, you know, everybody go, Oh, well, you know, we should wear N95s. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you should. (laughs) You know why? Because I'm wearing one and I'm not sick, but they are. Exactly. And early on, it seemed very clear that it was probably airborne. Right. And the CDC changed that multiple Mm -hmm. times at the beginning. They said, and I don't think just the CDC, I think others were saying it was airborne and then changed to droplet Mm -hmm. and then it changed to airborne. And Fauci, Fauci literally said, you don't need a mask. Yes. He literally said that. And then he and then he flip flops like a day or two later. And he's like, oh, you should wear a mask. And then they were like, oh, wear a face covering. Right. That was the most ridiculous thing. Like, what is a face covering? Right. Like, is it a is it a paper bag? Right. Like, what what is this? I remember joking with my uh, friends. We were like, dude, I'm just going to wear like a, uh, a Batman Halloween mask. <laughs> And they're like, well, it covers my face. Right. It is. Technically, it's a face <laughs> my, covering, right? My, my friend goes, oh, I'm going to wear a catcher's mask. <laughs> <laughs> That'll oh, be really man. protective. Back when like, all grocery stores were like, face coverings are required. <laughs> and they're like, what? I don't know what a face covering is. Right. Like, exactly. you just cover it. Right. I remember going to the grocery store and seeing people wearing like gloves <laughs> and like, uh like people would have like weird structures around their body like i would see people dressed in plastic like with like uh like um makeshift ponchos where they had like a trash bag cut over them and then like rubber gloves and then like a mask uh like big face shield thing like i saw people like with the masks that are that have the respirators on the the sides because they didn't have any masks i remember uh like immediately realizing the mask grab phenomenon where like there was nothing available Mm -hmm. and i was like looking for like a respirator mask or like a high uh quality um like reusable mask Mm -hmm. to wear like everywhere and you know you would see people randomly uh you know at the hospital walking around with like a legit gas mask on Mm -hmm. you're like dude yes yes (laughs) Wow, <laughs> and that's that's kind of when you like your your nerves get a little rattled there. Like, mm. is, is this N95 gonna like work? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I've been wearing it for four days. <laughs> exactly. And then you're like, I've been wearing it for ten days. Mm-hmm, seriously, <laughs> I remember like, actually. I would go home, and I right away get all my scrubs thrown right in the washer, get right. my mask off, you know, take it out of my car, and I would hang it on a hanger. <laughs> in the mudroom and spray it down with either alcohol or hydrogen peroxide to be able to reuse it again and the other people were putting it in their ovens people were people were using like uv lights which apparently you're not supposed to use on those actually we had yeah we had a uv light heater thing too yeah uh we also had uh what did we do we had paper bags we had plastic bags Mm -hmm. um yeah it it was just a whole wild wild thing Mm -hmm. everything started and you're just like this is madness. It was, yeah. I don't think that there was any clear any clear reasoning or any clear direction coming from anyone. And so right. I think it was kind of, it was almost this, like, fend for yourself, figure it out, kind of. Because COVID got here faster than the government could talk about what was going on. Mm-hmm. It was like every day something new in the media was weird. And mm-hmm. most people are already had kind of a sketchy kind of idea for the media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
you had lots of people that didn't like the president. So they mm-hmm. were like, anything the president said right or wrong was already wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, plus two, when you have a businessman, quote unquote, as the president, they're not going to understand things like biology, mm-hmm. and microbiology at that. Right. So like terminology is totally going to be, you know, jacked up. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just a, it's just a whole mess. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember going to the grocery store and just watching the run on toilet paper mm-hmm. of all things. Oh, yes. Like, why toilet paper? Yes. It was just like... <laughs> I don't know. I, I still don't understand. There's plenty of toilet paper. Like, yeah. Oh, my. Like, you can well, understand the, the antibiotic or the... um. The alcohol swabs and the the alcohol yes. hand sanitizer stuff and the masks and the gloves but and all that toilet stuff. Toilet paper, yeah. right? <laughs> toilet paper. Oh my gosh! I know. Well, you still go to Costco and they still have certain things rationed. You still there's still signs saying mask one mask max of oh max one of one for toilet paper for paper towels for all That's sorts wild. of things. Yeah, it's very interesting. That was interesting to me too because at the very beginning that started right from the beginning of the lockdown and the mm-hmm. pandemic and people were just going nuts just going out mm-hmm. right away trying to like stock up for their lockdown and that was interesting to me because that was the first time I ever saw something like that when I was shopping in a grocery store where there was a limit to what you could get for mm-hmm. your family. I remember there was And I was a picking limit. up stuff for for another family and I couldn't even get, you know, toilet paper for both mm-hmm. of us or I couldn't even get... If like open the package. Tomato <laughs> sauce for both of us oh because gosh. it was limited to a max of one and I needed it and I needed it for this other family I was buying for, but the cashiers don't know that, mm-hmm. you know? So it was just... Yeah, it was very, very so, bizarre and very strange to me because I'd never seen anything like that in America. So, so I, so I don't drink the spigot water in my house. I like it's terrible, mm-hmm. and I used to have a water softener. I need to get a new one. Um, I only drink bottled water, mm-hmm. and they limited the amount of bottled water you could get. People yes. were going crazy on that. I was like, dude, I'm not drinking spigot water. Right. But it turns out there's only me here. You know, it wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. I was single at the time. You know, mm-hmm. no one was really coming over to my house. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so it was crazy. But I was like, oh, wow, I can only have one jug of water. So I went, I remember one day, I went four straight days to Walmart and bought a jug of water each day. <laughs> That's insane. Because I was like, well, I'm going to make coffee. Right. So, like, I need my water. Cause That's crazy. If you work in healthcare, you need to have coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Shout out to Black Rifle Coffee real quick for like literally keeping me alive during the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> uh, Silencer Smooth is the best. If you're not, <laughs> if you've never heard of them, that is the go-to. It's like a light roast. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I actually never was hooked on coffee until I was a nurse. Really? <laughs> yeah. Once I was working night shift, I, yeah, had, to, it I had to have yep. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, yep. you just, you can't do it. You're just like, oh my God, I need coffee. And then, yeah, I worked evening shift for a long time. And then when I got into nights, I was like, oh man, I need caffeine. Right, yeah. Right around three in the morning was and when I started. Obviously, if you know it. anything about like, you know, healthcare, you're like, well, soda's bad for you. Mm-hmm. So like, I can't just be drinking Coca-Cola or Mountain Dew all day. Mm-hmm. Like, that's sure. no good. So <laughs> you're like, well, I'll just drink coffee now it's and true. then you acquire the taste for it and you're like oh what's the difference between a macchiato and an american <laughs> right. and you're like oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah it's it's a wild thing yeah um so after the initial rush of covid we had the summer that kind of like cooled off mm-hmm. and there was still mass paranoia mm-hmm. but cases dropped off mm-hmm. um and everything thought we thought it was like done mm-hmm. So something about with 
the initial lockdown for you was it, everything went the same mm-hmm. in the hospital setting. You still had patient, you know, patients, ventilators, etc. And actually, I remember you mentioned something about how you guys had to really the whole first month you were just figuring out what would work for these COVID patients. Mm, right. For us in urgent care, it was like a ghost town for three months. Hmm. So the other problem with COVID is that and the whole lockdown pandemic, you know, quarantine type of situation is that we ended up not having business. And yes, you don't want to see sick people. I mean, like right, you right. don't want but more sick you're, people, you're not but you're in the business of taking care of sick people. Right. And when you have no one coming in, right. even for heart attacks that they should be coming in for, um, that really affects your business. Right, right. So we literally had three months where we hardly were seeing anyone. And mm-hmm. it was funny because people were coming in. They were giving us, they were dropping off donuts or dropping off, you know, appreciative <laughs> like flowers or whatever it was and saying, thank you so much for what you guys do. You guys are heroes. And we're like, You're we're literally sitting, sitting around, around all day. Like, there's nothing that we're doing. <laughs> so we're like, thanks, but there's not really, we're not doing anything you know heroic right now at least so senses are so low yeah exactly so 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 that was challenging because i know my husband works in a um pediatric practice and he's the office manager there and for him it was challenging and super stressful and he was working 60 hour weeks because he was trying to make sure that the business stayed afloat Mm -hmm. because they didn't have any patients coming in right um so yeah so there's a whole other level you know to COVID too that can yeah that was a very very challenging time in that way but so in hospital it was pretty wild because the um the idea was you got this crazy disease that you had never seen before Mm -hmm. and we didn't know who could get it we didn't know who was going to be affected by it um little by little we had little trickles of information coming Mm -hmm. in and I want to say right away, we found out there was mostly older people, like right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And, I agree with that. And like, we didn't know what to do with them. So right off the bat, like when anybody had respiratory failure, we would just intubate. Mm-hmm. And when you would intubate these people, they would inevitably get worse. And then we didn't know anything about this clotting factor. And they would have strokes. They would have, you know, uh, I can't remember really MIs, but I'm sure there were. Um but we kept having these um, a lot of PEs, like PEs pulmonary embolisms. And just this crazy weird clotting. We were like, you know, so touch and go with what information was happening. We didn't know if patients were coming in with strokes or they were having strokes from COVID. Everything got blanketed with like the idea that it was from COVID. Mm-hmm. And we were like, well, but these people also have comorbidities. Mm-hmm. And so it was this weird thing. Was it like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Right. And... You know, a lot of people were like, oh, well, COVID, oh, well, COVID, oh, well, COVID, oh, well, COVID. And you're like, yeah, but like this guy's, you know, 350 pounds, has diabetes, Mm -hmm. is, you know, 65 years old. Really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was really interesting because then what happened is everybody got afraid of the hospital and people were afraid to come into the hospital. But hospitals treat a lot of chronic illness. Mm -hmm. So these chronic illnesses were going left totally unchecked because people were paralyzed. They didn't want to go right. into hospitals. They weren't going to urgent care. Right. They didn't want to see like other people. Mm-hmm. So they weren't going to pharmacies. They weren't going to drugstores. They weren't mm-hmm. getting their maintenance drugs. Mm-hmm. 
And the summer was really quiet for us, actually. Um, I don't remember what census, but like we had patients, but it was like, we're not doing elective surgeries. We're not doing, um, you know, broad, typical things. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the fall came about and then you start seeing that uptick in case numbers because Mm -hmm. essentially what happens is with the, with the transmission, people go inside as it gets cooler out, Mm -hmm. people go inside, they're around people more often. Mm -hmm. And they think like, oh, well, there's not really any COVID anymore. We haven't had cases. They go inside. They start spreading it more. More people got it. And then what happened was you got smashed in the fall. And, we did too, yeah. And the, the winter mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. 2020 into 2021. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's when everything sort of, sort of shifted from like, you know, what is COVID to how do we treat COVID? Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was just this total like just... I don't want to say war zone to like disrespect people in, in on duty, but like, that's what it felt like. You were just running around crazy. I remember one time I was in the emergency department and I was just covering for, um, somebody. I just happened to walk by. I I didn't even have the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And I, I walked by a corner, a physician saw me and he goes, Phil, Hey, we're going to intubate this guy. And I'm like, what? And as I'm saying, what he's throwing a gown, on my arms to go in to conserve PPEs. And I'm like looking at this gown going, are you kidding me? This is a dirty <laughs> gown. I'm like, oh. So oh, I go no. in, we intubate the guy, Ugh, whole mess. But that's the level of like acuity that was just coming mm-hmm. in. People were coming in and they were dropping fast. Like mm-hmm. they're just like, it, it was just like a full on blitzkrieg of like what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was, it was madness. Uh, we had staff like getting sick. Mm-hmm. We had staff, you know, calling out because they were afraid. Um, and it was a whole, whole big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, we kind of had a similar scenario in urgent care mm-hmm. fall into winter. It was just, a just a mess. I mean, it was just so busy. Um, we had, so last, so the summer of 2020, we started to pick up some in numbers because in May we started doing outside pull up COVID testing. That was oh. new. We had never done anything like that before, but it was so stinking hot over the summer. <laughs> we had the N95s on, we had the gowns on, like 100 degrees outside, humid. Wait, so, okay, okay. And Let, we're out there for hours testing people. Walk us through the process of like testing people in their cars. Yes. So, okay. You're at your center, presumably yeah. on like a tent with like an overhang yes, or something. Yes, we had a tent. Yep. And people would pull up in their car. Yep. And they would drive up to like a given space as yes. they're like waved on, roll their window down. Yes. You would stick the probe down their nose. Right. Rattle it around in the, the back of their nasopharyngeal head. nasopharyngeal one that goes the whole way back. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, like, exactly. Like six or eight centimeters back in your nasal passage. Mm-hmm. And then you leave it there for, what is it, 30, 40 seconds? Like that? It was 10. They had to, the physician assistants were mainly doing it at the time the providers were doing it. Mm. And the nurses and medical assistants were assisting them. And so they, it was 10, 10 seconds, seconds. Per, oh, okay. um, per second. So you take the swab out, close it. They drive off. Mm-hmm. The next person comes up. Mm-hmm. You don't change PE, PPEs like in between really? No. <laughs> no. Oh, man. No. No. no we there's, don't have time yeah. for that in pandemics. No, there's no time for there's it. No, there's no time for cleanliness. <laughs> we were to change... We were, ch- <laughs> we were to change our gloves and that was about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Great. we would take the sample into the lab in a sealed bag, 
take a take the top set of gloves off, type in the information into the computer, take the other set of gloves off, and then get two new sets on to go do the next person. So you're going glove on top of glove? Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Extra hand sweat. Yeah. Just, oh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was pretty rough. They actually ended up getting us um, air conditioner units in the tents. Oh, the for outside? Yeah, for outside. Oh, man. It was crazy. We, there, were, there were days where you would pull your N95 off your face to and breathe. And it was just saturated. You literally yeah. would have water just yeah. pouring out of it. It was disgusting. <laughs> so it was so gross. Um, but that was for that lasted for the summer. And then sometime in the fall, they decided to bring the testing inside. So we were testing in the back of our centers and like the back two rooms doing testing. And people would just come in to do their test and leave the center. They didn't have to go through the whole center and like all the check-in and all that stuff. So that was new. And around that same time, I think it was about October of 2020, around that same time, they also changed the rules that we could do the testing with surgical masks on. And oh. let me tell you that that whole month of November, December, January, every week there were two to three staff members going out with COVID. <laughs> so I yeah, learned that... Obviously, the surgical mask, although they were saying that it was fine for testing, it wasn't working. In my opinion, it wasn't working and kind of learned the hard way with that. Mm -hmm. So I got COVID actually in November. I was like within the first month of that, I got COVID. Um, It was and yeah, didn't I didn't have it too badly. I had cold symptoms, lost my taste and smell for two weeks and had a fever for a couple hours. It wasn't too bad for me. My husband got it really badly. He had all the symptoms except for the shortness of breath, and he had a fever of 103 for 10 days. Mm-hmm. So he ended up needing IV fluids, and that finally kicked it for him, and, mm-hmm. and then he was good after that. But oh. um, but not obviously like our situation wasn't nearly what you see to the extent of you know hospitalization type of situation. Sure, sure. Um, but um, but yeah, we both ended up. I'm pretty sure I probably gave it to him. Um, so we both ended up with it and yeah, so, so then worked through the winter and it was just crazy busy. Everyone was burnt out. Um, and that lasted until the spring sometime. I think I, I mm-hmm. felt like sometime in the spring, it kind of dropped off with numbers again. I think, yeah, I think the numbers started slowing down in like early March. Yeah, that would be about And then right. it just kind of trended down a little mm-hmm. bit. Obviously around like holiday gatherings, it like spiked and everything mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but um i think that uh once we got through the worst of it that's when ideas on how to treat stuff really started evolving mm-hmm. um instead of like having this blitz of like whether ventilators were good or not mm-hmm. um there was this whole big run early on like are we gonna have enough ventilators uh we need to get devices 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 and then while i think the media was talking about ventilators in hospital we were realizing that ventilators didn't work Mm -hmm. and that we weren't getting patients off the ventilator and i know our biggest thing was um you know people were worried about cases and they were worried about um you know how many cases came in but i was worried about death Mm -hmm. my i said from the very beginning the the only number that matters is deaths yeah i mean you could amend that and say hospitalizations matter Mm mm-hmm but deaths, like obviously that's the part you're not coming back from. Mm-hmm. And 
it was just crazy because I remember every bed in her ICU had a COVID patient in it, COVID mm-hmm. patient intubated. And here's the thing. In COVID ventilation and in respiratory, we, we first started having patients that would last like one or two days before they would uh, essentially, you know, have a cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what ended up happening is our treatments elongated the time that they were intubated. Mm-hmm. So we would get a few patients, you know, every week that would be intubated or require intubation, but then they would stay in the ICU for weeks, mm. uh, like several weeks. And so when you have patients that are literally intubated for, you know, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, um, you know, that's obviously other beds that you don't have for other people. Right. And we started finding out that these people weren't coming off the ventilator. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would just be on the ventilator for five or six weeks. We would prone them and try different stuff, mm-hmm. uh, different medications, different positions. And they would just expire eventually after mm-hmm. being on the ventilator. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, too, is we had them in precautions the entire time. And I remember mm-hmm. asking a physician early on. I was like, guys, so what's the logic here for having a COVID patient in isolation on a ventilator for six weeks mm-hmm. when if I get COVID, I quarantine for two weeks. So true. So yeah. where, where's the logical, days, right? Cons- <laughs> right. Where, where's the logical consistency here though? Like we're wasting resources to go in and turn these patients and do head turns when they're right. prone and do all this business, but are they still capable of actually infecting others? Right. And I remember asking that and then I don't want to take credit for it or anything, but literally like a week or two later, (laughs) they were like, hey, so um, if they've been intubated for greater than two weeks and they've been positive for COVID, uh, we're not considering them infectious anymore. And I was like, did I not just say? (laughs) Did I not just say? And um, it was was really interesting. Um, I don't know what the guidance was on that or how it just came or if it was like sheer coincidence, but I literally, I distinctly remember <laughs> having a conversation with a physician about it. And then like two weeks later, it was totally different. That's so interesting. It's so true though, because, and the thing with the precautions, a lot of people don't realize this, but if you're on precautions for anything, it could be for MRSA infection. It could be for, um, you know, COVID obviously, obviously in the hospital. Um, it could be for, so what else? Uh, Klebsiella pneumonia. There's so many other infections. There's certain things that people go on precaution, contact precautions for. And also, obviously, mm-hmm. COVID precautions mm-hmm. are even more strict. But those patients, it affects their care. Because if you have to put a gown and mask and you know face shield and everything on every single time you go into that room, yeah, it's going to take up time that you can't be with other patients. And it also takes mm-hmm. up um, it also just, it affects when you head in there, you try to get everything done that you can, but it doesn't always work that way. And you leave the room and then you realize that there's other things that you need to do. And then you have to regown up and do everything again to get back in there. Mm-hmm. It affects the amount of time that you can't be just directly giving them the care that they need because you're dealing with all of these precautions every mm-hmm. single time that you're going right, in and right. out. So... Um, unfortunately it's just not an ideal situation, but it makes sense that if they changed it, 
so that after the two weeks that you don't have to do precautions, it probably actually helped improve patient care too. Probably. But, yeah. I would think so. I mean, it's literally just an efficiency. Yeah. Another thing that we uh, had a problem with is actually getting our reusable PPEs back. Mm-hmm. So we, I don't know how standard this is, but some hospitals, I guess, outsource the cleaning of mm-hmm. their like nylon or whatever they're made of gowns. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't get them back. Because there were no workers at the washing places. So we would send stuff out in trucks and then we wouldn't have PPEs. So there was a time where they were like, oh, you have to re-wear your PPEs. Mm-hmm. I think what happened was we just stopped wearing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. did that too, though. For our testing outside, we had to re-wear the gowns and stuff too. We had a room where we would like each hang up our yeah, stuff right. for the oh, next yeah, time right. that we worked. <laughs> we had the uh, those like... Um, there was like, what are those hooks that you would hang like a picture on the wall? Mm-hmm. We had them like on the glass mm-hmm. and they were like, this one's respiratory, this one's CRNA, <laughs> this one's nursing, this one's, you know, whatever letters that are other positions. <laughs> That's crazy. It was, it was wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, fast forwarding to now. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, like, how do we get out of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we... How do we fix healthcare from like all of these, all the, all these problems that we have? We have inefficiencies everywhere. We have, you know, mass hysteria from people not understanding yeah. what, what's going on. Yeah. We have, you know, uh, businesses just crumbling uh, mm-hmm. because the places don't have money. Yeah. Their, their resources are just all used up. Yeah. Like how do we, how, how does healthcare not crumble and fall apart? Yeah. So it's a great question. I think there's several different things that could be better that might help. I know one of the things we've been saying recently, we've seen such an increase in our patient volume. I We used to be open 14 hours of the day. Then they decreased it down to 12 hours in the mm-hmm. last few weeks. And then around Christmas, now they will stop taking more patients sometimes mid-afternoon just because we're that inundated with volume of patients. So part of that, I know it, I, I know it would be helpful if people can have their own test kits at home oh, and trust okay. their test nice. kits. Yeah. Huh. I um, never thought of that. That would be – that is one thing that is helpful. I know some people who who have used their own test kits at home to test for COVID. Mm-hmm. The tests, as far as I know, are just as accurate as the ones that we're using in healthcare. And if they can get their own test kits at home and see if they're positive or not, and if their their employers would use that result and not have them coming into urgent care to get retested, that would help a ton because then we wouldn't have all of this volume of patients because they already had their, their tests done at home. They knew they were positive and they can stay home and quarantine. Um, that is one thing that would be helpful. Um, and that patients would be educated to understand that it is the test result that they get at home is accurate. So we'll have people come in just because they need to make sure that their positive COVID test at home was actually accurate and they're coming in for a test with us. So it's kind of tricky because 
I mean, we'll test them, we'll do all that, and some of their employers need us to test them and show the paperwork for it, but they had the positive at home, they should just be able to trust their positive tests from home and right, not have right. to come and test. So that would cut down on volume um, and obviously staff burnout if we didn't have so much volume. Um, but that's one thing. Um, I think... So while you were talking there, I pulled yeah. up uh, how accurate are at-home COVID tests yeah. from uh, the New York Times. Uh, this came out, when did this come out? January 3rd in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, says, in the early months of the pandemic, any coronavirus test. Oh, it's not the, this is not the time for creativity. What? What is that? What, what, what does it, that even mean? I think this is exactly the time for creativity. <laughs> um, That's so true. Uh, chain tests typically been considered the gold standard for detecting the virus. PCR tests, even trace viruses, rapid antigen tests. Well, this is a long article to get to a, a, a statement. Mm-hmm. Okay, some of the at-home rapid antigen tests have an overall sensitivity of roughly 85%, which means that they are catching roughly 85% of people who are infected with the virus and missing 15%. There you go. Well, at times we were told in urgent care that our rapid antigen tests were about 50% accurate. So that's a lot better oh, wow. than the ones so that that's we a were lot using. Better, maybe. So I don't mm, know. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know if that has changed over time. That was at that was in 2020. At the 85% the pandemic, though, but... that's still only a B. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's still only a B. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. But I think they're, I, I believe they're comparable to the ones that we use in urgent care. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Anyways, so I can't say for sure scientifically, but I believe that they are comparable. If you get a positive on your antigen test at home, most likely it is going to be a positive when you come right. in and test with us. So if employers could accept that positive, that would be a huge help to, you know, bring down the volume. Um, yeah, of that's patients. interesting. I wonder if like it would just make sense to take two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Just be like, just well, best yeah. out of three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then if you had an inconclusive one, then you just take a third. Right. That's true. That's true. Meanwhile, it's like how much per test? Like 20 bucks maybe? Yeah. Just spitballing. I'm, I have no idea. I'm not too really sure actually on that. That's a great question. <clears throat> we, yeah, so we see a fair amount of people coming in who are just trying to confirm what they, or they didn't believe the result from home. Um, so, mm. yeah. And unfortunately, I have patients who come in with more severe problems and then they're waiting for five hours to register to see it you know before they even Mm, can get triaged mm -hmm. to see a doctor and they're not able to get in sooner because we are so backed up with all of these people coming in with cold symptoms needing testing done Mm. you know so for one reason or another so unfortunately i mean that home testing would be helpful because that kind of offloads the amount of people that were that we have coming through um at some point i wonder if we'll just reach herd immunity is that mm-hmm. a real thing i don't know you know right, um right. and this new omicron coming out it's almost it's literally hitting so many people at one time right the rate of omicron is crazy it's i insane. think the uh the cdc tracker actually shows that it's 94% Omicron variant right. happening 
in the uh, in the northeast okay yeah well that's um, great to know because i had heard so i heard the other day from someone um who works in you know southeastern pennsylvania that the sources that they've been following and their provider and they were saying that the sources that they've been following in emergency medicine mm-hmm. are saying that we're still mainly seeing the delta variant in our area and i said well where are they pulling the sample from because there's no possible way that we're still only seeing the delta variant because we have had such a surge in patient number i've never never ever ever seen now i've only been in medicine for almost 13 years but i've never seen this volume of patients and obviously our company hasn't even seen it in four decades that we've been open so Mm -hmm. so in my opinion i think we're probably seeing omicron but i don't know i believe (laughs) so um so I have the COVID tracker pulled up right so now. So I'm not sure why it's not running. Oh, it's because I didn't scroll all the way to the end. Oh, okay. When I touched it before, it decides to go. Oh, but there it, you it go. Just I was like, going. did it stop? Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so according to COVID.com, COVID.cdc.gov, mm-hmm. uh, Omicron makes up 98.3% of COVID cases in wow. the Northeast United States. Wow. Um, on I believe today's it. date of one, well, uh, as of as of January eighth, twenty twenty. Okay. Uh, so we have an overwhelming amount of cases of yeah. Omicron. There's virtually no other uh, rates. So the other rates, Delta, is showing a rate of point nine to three wow. percent. Wow. Of COVID cases, and this is wow. again coming from the CDC itself. Wow. So you got to think that this data is actually pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I don't I I hope that everything that we think we know about Omicron is that it actually is mild. So far, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing in right. urgent care. It's been cold symptoms mainly that we mm-hmm. see. So we just see a huge volume of patients. But but it's so far been mainly cold symptoms um we occasionally are seeing pneumonia still i think i personally think some of that is dealt the delta still is around it could be it could be um, i'm so. wondering i wonder if the more severe cases that do come into the hospital are like delta holdovers mm-hmm. uh i don't know mm-hmm. i don't know if there's any way to to know that mm-hmm. but from seeing what you've seen in in working you know, in intensive care, mm-hmm. it's like there's certain patients that are just so bad with the COVID yeah. pneumonias. Yeah. And there's some patients that are like hardly have the sniffles. Right. So um, the other thing, too, is the mass quantity of people in ICU with bad COVID infections mm-hmm. are unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. They're also morbidly obese. Mm-hmm. Uh, most are old, but mm-hmm. m- the biggest variations in health care or health quality of the patients is literally body weight mm-hmm. uh morbidly obese people are hit hard mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's brutal mm-hmm. um and it's really disappointing that i think that a lot of the um healthcare, you know signaling isn't talking about you know personal health as right. much as they should like i don't have any patients that are as skinny as me Mm-hmm. yeah that's true that's and true. you know as tall as me coming in with like covid right you know my body type is you know subject to spontaneous pneumothorax right uh but the covid patients that we're seeing are 
generally, you know, something with like a BMI of 30 or greater, mm-hmm. um, these morbidly obese people, mm-hmm. and the average age is like up there. It's like 60 and up. Now, there, we have cases that are less than that, mm-hmm. but these are, I want to say 99 point, well, I don't want to say, I don't want to put a number on it, but right. the, the sheer majority of it yeah. is like very obese people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, that's not a topic that you'll hear about. No. In the media. No one's talking about it. It's not, I guess, maybe not politically correct, but it's something that, I mean, I've tried to educate patients on that. I have patients calling me who I have to talk down off the ledge because they're freaking out that they have COVID. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you you're, you have no risk factors for this being comp- like a, an issue for you. You like, you know, monitor your symptoms. Make sure that you're not getting worse with breathing or anything like that. Obviously, come back into the hospital or urgent care if you are, but you you don't need to be freaking out about this. But no one knows that it's, you know, the people who are overweight, obese, et cetera, who are the ones who are mainly ending up um, passing away from COVID. No one's talking about that topic. So there's just a there's a major lack of education in general, I think, and I deal with it a lot over the phone with talking with patients about COVID um, and COVID related topics. So unfortunately, I think it would be helpful. It won't necessarily get rid of COVID (laughs) um, to educate people, but I think more people need to be educated on actual truth about COVID for sure. That definitely needs to happen. so I have pulled up here from the CDC again, the relationship to body mass index mm-hmm. uh, with COVID hospitalizations. And it says studies indicate that an increased risk for severe COVID-19 associated illness among persons with excess weight provide additional information about those dose response relationships, higher BMI and risk for hospitalizations. ICU admissions, blah, 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 blah. This did not say what I thought it was going to. Ah, increases with higher BMI suggests that progressively intensive management of COVID-19 might be needed mm-hmm. for patients with severe obesity. This finding also supports the hypothesis that inflammation from excess adiposity might be a factor in the severity of COVID-19 associated illness. A little higher. What is the blue line here? Oh, BMI. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so equal to 18. Okay, so the blue line is equal to 18. Mm-hmm. All right, so, oh, wow. And so COVID infection is literally higher in every category. Yeah. Higher than a BMI of 18. Right. Wow. Again, this is... It increases in... It increases in each and every category by mm -hmm. the older the age goes. Right, along with age. Yep. Whew. Yeah, okay. So I'm not just talking out of my ass there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's wild. Again, that's from the CDC, <laughs> basically just saying that the older and heavier you are, the worse off COVID can be. For their body mass index and risk of COVID-19 related hospitalization. That's from December of 2020. That's, yeah, that's yeah. Interesting. From 2020. December oh, I thought I, I thought I read it March 2021. Yeah, it says, well, at the very top, it says December 20. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. March to December 2020. So they're hmm. using the statistics from last year, but then it came out. Mm, March 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's yeah. amazing that with that data, they don't come out and say, "Guys, you should probably start losing weight." Yeah, right, exactly. Like I mean, I know losing weight is hard. 
yeah. and like everything but like you can watch what you eat yeah right <laughs> you can i mean there's things that you can exercise if, i feel like if people knew that that is something that they can control related mm-hmm. to this pandemic right. something that they can do for themselves right. the more people might actually do it and take it seriously the amount of people out there who are f- scared out of their mind about covid mm-hmm. if they just knew that if they start exercising and bring their BMI down, that actually could be a huge it would part of surviving help. COVID. Would, yeah, yeah. And if <laughs> um, you're and if you are obese, you should definitely get the vaccine. Right. I think, um, just because your risk level is so high. So high. Um, I'm never gonna tell somebody not to get the vaccine. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But like, I'm I'm not gonna you know obviously make the choice that you think is right Absolutely. for you. But I think when you look at these risk factors and that data. Like, you just have to think, like, if your BMI is high, you should definitely consider it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, it, like, I don't want to tell anybody ever what to do. Mm -hmm. It's just not something that I, you know, want to do. Mm -hmm. But, like, I strongly encourage it. Um, I don't think that we're doing anybody a disservice by just harping on get the vaccine alone. I think we need to... I think we need to actually, you know, actually encourage healthy habits. And I think exactly. that's that's a big problem. Like, I mean, so think about it. Like, if we just brought the collective obesity rate down, mm-hmm. um, I had on my, my other episode that uh, the obesity rate in this country is about 40%. Wow. Like, just wow. across the board. Wow. So, you know, two out of five people are mm-hmm. obese. Mm-hmm. Like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. So, when you're, when you're, you know looking at all of the things that are associated with obesity, you know, heart disease and diabetes mm-hmm. and, and all these other things. These are big time, you know, like life shortening comorbidities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we collectively, you know, improved our obesity, mm-hmm. yeah, I, we would just be a better, healthier country, right. like right off the bat. So how do we right. do that? Right. Like, I mean, to curb obesity, like, do we do we do that in the what's the most appropriate way to talk mm-hmm. to people about obesity right yeah how do we do that do we yeah. have to like talk to people like in the hospital and go okay like we're gonna build a mm-hmm. weight loss plan like how would we do that well family practice doctors mm-hmm. should be they should do be. more of the preventative medicine with you know exams and um annual checkups and things like that um so they really should be urgent care we've tried to do it a little Mm bit but we have so since um since the affordable care act Mm. went into place we had to start putting bmi on the paperwork that we Mm -hmm. send home with patients Mm -hmm. their discharge paperwork okay and if it was high um if they're overweight or if they're obese it'll print out with a little slip with information on that i'm sure in that slip of paper it explains to people that they need to be and you know what they do (laughs) with that paper they they toss it out or else they (laughs) yell at me because they say why are you telling me i'm obese or i'm overweight and i'm like oh my goodness hold on a second i'm i'm not the one (laughs) requiring that we print this for you you know like this is not my that's actually an interesting argument. But, Do you think that, you know, you should be required to tell somebody about their 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 BMI rate? Right. Right. You know, like, I mean, 
I, I guess I think with it being a health concern, like you should at least acknowledge that it's a health concern. I know with like things like smoking cessation, yeah. you ask people like, oh, do you smoke? And they go, oh, yeah, I smoke like a pack a day for and you ask like how long you go, mm-hmm. are you interested in quitting a lot of people are like yeah i've been trying to quit for 10 years yeah you exactly. go this whole long thing of, exactly you know spoke smoking cessation and all mm. this um but for obesity we're not handing out paperwork like that not that i know of <laughs> and it's a little bit different too because people some people not everyone some people don't they don't want to hear it either mm-hmm. so it's kind of a tricky topic because I mean, you would think that if someone is obese, they would they would know. Mm, but mm-hmm. it's like not always a topic that they want to talk about. Yeah, I think it, I think it's definitely uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. I think that um, you know people people look at obesity maybe through a lens of like they're failing, maybe, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. don't want to hear it. They're constantly reminded of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I have the opposite body bodily issue and let me tell mm-hmm. you about this so i was always skinny for my height mm-hmm. uh when i was when i was 19 20 21 22 23 i was like 160 pounds mm-hmm. 155 pounds mm-hmm. at six foot six skinny as a rail <laughs> healthy ate all the time but i was not very healthy mm-hmm. like i mean i was healthy but it wasn't like you know i wasn't like athletic Mm-hmm. and you know i had like lower back pain and i mm-hmm. had like other issues so um and, you know when you're that skinny clothes don't fit mm-hmm. people make jokes this is the interesting thing to me about about body weight no one cares about your feelings when you're skinny mm-hmm. but hmm. people care about your feelings when you're overweight yeah so they'll be cautious when you're overweight but if you're skinny They'll say stuff like, oh, if you stick your tongue out, you look like a zipper. <laughs> or, you know, oh, I, you look like the number one standing there. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I got a lot of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I realized early on, I was like, why is it okay to, like, tell skinny people they're skinny, but not fat people to tell them right. they're yeah. fat? I'm like, yeah. this is just a logical inconsistency. And I think it was because some people associated being skinny with, like, good looking or something. But there's... The opposite end of the spectrum there where right. it's like, you know, hey, you're skinny. Like, do you have an eating disorder? Mm-hmm. I never did. I had a always crazy appetite. But a lot of it was after I stopped playing sports, like you don't have the like I used, I played basketball like all the time and I was working out with that and everything. But I didn't have the idea in my head to like keep it up mm-hmm. after, you know, after I graduated college and, you know, when you're 22, 23, 24. And I was like, you know, maybe I should actually make a change with this. So mm-hmm. I started lifting weights like four times a week when I was about 24. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, it just changed my life. Like mm-hmm. it was crazy. I gained, I was, I've always been a confident person, mm-hmm. but my confidence went through the roof. My energy levels went sky high. Um, my, you know, desire to just be a person went (laughs) like crazy high. Like I never had like issues with depression or anything, but like, you know, people struggle and everything. Um, so I spent four years working out four days a week. Wow. Wow. And I went from, 
uh, I went from about 155 pounds to about 192 pounds. Wow. Um, all I did was, you know, work out, add protein shakes and be conscious of what I ate. Mm-hmm. And I put on a bunch of muscle mass and it was like, it was great. Like, like clothes fit better. I just felt better, <laughs> like all around. I didn't have any back pain. Um, and it was, it was a lot of work. It was really addicting because I got addicted to feeling good. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, like you really want to tell other people like, dude, you got to get in the gym, like mm-hmm. go to the gym, work out for like, you know, a couple hours each week. And like, you're going to feel great. Mm-hmm. And you know, some people would, and they couldn't get past the, like the month stage of being sore all the time. Right. Yep. Um, but yeah, like I, I just decided to do something about it. I, I got tired of being like, you know, Oh, he's the skinny person. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting too, because there was this time where patients stopped referring to me as like, Oh, he's a tall, thin person. To, oh, he's a big guy. <laughs> and I was like, hey, this is cool. <laughs> so it's when it's when the, the feedback from spontaneous people changed is mm-hmm. when I sort of like totally changed how like everything sort of worked for me. It, mm-hmm. it was wild. Um, definitely had a great time with it. And uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, looking at workout things and all that business. But it was... It was definitely crazy. It, it, it was definitely worthwhile mm-hmm. to do something about your body. Mm-hmm. I found myself to be very motivating to other people too that I would work out with, train with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, listen, like I did this. You can do it. Come on. Mm-hmm. And it was just something I like still do. I don't work out all that much anymore, mm-hmm. but I still did. I worked out today in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. That's awesome. I just wish more people would have that idea of like i have the ability to change Mm -hmm. and it's like it's all on me Mm -hmm. because that's the thing that people respect about people that work out a lot is they realize like the only way to get that is to do that Mm -hmm. it's not like anything else Mm -hmm. well it's yeah education right the only way to get a doctorate is to go to school for you know a doctorate yeah you don't just you know pull one out of a cereal box (laughs) (laughs) you have to grind a long time um it's true. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's so true. But, yeah. So, we just did an hour and 37 minutes. Yeah. Awesome. That was, like, really easy to do. I know. I feel like there's... I'm trying to think if there's, like, more topics. I know something that stood out to me that I thought was really interesting at the beginning of the pandemic. hmm When there... I think you had mentioned, and this, like, clicked to me, that... At the beginning of the pandemic, we thought that it was more of a lung disease. Yeah. And so they were, the patients were being treated that way. But it really is actually a blood disease. Mm. So it's more of like an issue of the blood. That was that was interesting to me. That stood out to me. And I that is something that I've tried to educate patients on too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the clotting was crazy. I don't remember. I'd have to look into more of how that all interacts. I've had, um, yeah, I've had patients who I swear I'm pretty certain. I mean, I've referred them to the hospital hmm. to get CAT scans and such hmm. done because I'm pretty certain over just talking to them over the phone. I'm like, you have to have a PE from COVID right now. But, huh. um, huh. but people don't, don't always know that part of COVID, right. you know, um, that complication of it, that it, it really is a blood I believe that the three primary things with COVID are 
the viral replication, mm -hmm. the inflammatory process, yes, and the uh, clotting factors. Yeah, and I think treating patients in COVID successfully requires hitting all three of those. Right. Um, it's all hard to do. Information's all over the place with it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think the vaccines kind of curve the generality of like how high it can go. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, obviously you can't, you know, have human testing, <laughs> right, right. you know, but like um, it is interesting to see how like most of the ICU cases are unvaccinated, but also mm -hmm. obese. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that the public signaling is like only vaccination, not mm -hmm. Hey, vaccination and lose weight mm -hmm. because we're seeing a pre predominantly one patient type. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you have to do both. Mm -hmm. um, I have the vaccine. I got Moderna. Well, I don't know, little while, not not that long ago, but I got Moderna, mm -hmm. and um, I really thought about it for a long time, and I wasn't sure which one would be better if mm -hmm. it was really necessary for me because again, skinny. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually, I just figured that the risk of exposure and repeated exposure for me being at the hospital, I didn't know what that would do. Mm -hmm. And I figured that I would have less risk from the vaccine than repeated exposure from my job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I got it. And let me tell you, it sucked. Mm -hmm. It was so bad. I've never been that sick mm -hmm. in my life. So um, my experience with it was that I got the first shot and then several weeks later, you get the second shot. Mm -hmm. So the first shot I got, and it was, mm, I had like a sore arm, and I had a dry mouth like mm -hmm. 24 hours later. Hmm. And then I was like, okay, cool. So I got the next one, and it was, what was it, like a month later or some amount of weeks? So I get the second one, and I thought, okay, maybe it's going to be the same thing. No. Wow. <laughs> it was dramatically different. I've heard several people say that. So yeah. I I went back, same place, got it, and I made sure that I was off for a couple of days because mm -hmm. I thought, oh, well, you know, let's just see how this goes. So what I did was I got it in the evening thinking that I would just go home, take a Benadryl, go to sleep, and sleep mm -hmm. out oh, oh, any, like, soreness or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I woke up the next day, like, exhausted. Mm-hmm so tired mm -hmm. had a headache mm -hmm. um let's see what else do i have body aches you probably essentially felt like you had COVID. <laughs> yeah i had i had chills mm -hmm. um like it, it was just weird so i took my son to school uh dropped him off and pretty much just laid on the couch all day mm -hmm. just feeling like like the worst sickness that like mm -hmm. I had ever had. Cause like, I don't get sick. Mm -hmm. Like I get maybe a stuffy nose in the, in the winter. Mm -hmm. But like, other than that, I don't get like the flu. I don't get like, you know, infections. I don't mm -hmm. get colds. I don't get any of that crap. Mm -hmm. I take vitamins all the day and it's mm -hmm. fine. Um, so I, I'm feeling all of this and I'm like, dude, this is the worst I've felt in like a decade. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Try, I'm laying on the couch trying to remember the last time I felt like that. And I was like, dude, it's been years, mm. years, like actual years. And it was so wild that I went and got my son. I still felt really bad. So <clears throat> I, uh, I got him back from school and he was playing and I was laying on the couch and five o'clock hit 
literally 24 hours from getting the shot that everything cleared sun shone upon my face and i felt good again it was like it was ridiculous i couldn't like it was it was like nothing happened it was like it was like you know it it was just gone it was literally like 24 hours exactly on the dot that i stopped having these weird symptoms and i was like oh that's crazy what just happened I was like, this is weird. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't, I haven't felt anything since, you know, um, when you, you know, read studies about younger people giving me vaccine and talk about myocarditis and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. First thing I did was like, okay, let's make sure my heart doesn't explode out of my chest or something. Cause I have no <laughs> idea what's going on. Right. You have these, when you work in healthcare, you're always kind of a hypochondriac. <laughs> yeah, you think everything's sure. going to happen to you. <laughs> sure. And so I was like, you know, I don't think. I'm going to actually have any issues, but you know, you just keep track and you educate yourself on everything. Mm-hmm. All I had was like a little anxiety. Mm-hmm. I was just like, Oh, I got this. Hope this didn't go bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it was fine. It worked out. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Still have it now, I guess. So we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hopefully, it's hopefully. fine. I don't know. I haven't gotten sick. I haven't me. felt yeah, any exactly. symptoms or anything. So, right. but yeah. So yeah. We're yeah. at um, an hour and 44 I know. minutes. I could literally talk about this topic all day. Um, I mean, we don't have to go. It's also late at night. Yeah, I know. I so probably should. I probably should can, wrap up. We because... can always, you know, wrap up here and yeah. um, we can resume another time. Yeah, that's true, too. We've been going for a, a long time and there's no reason why we can't, you know, have a part B. Yeah, that's true, so, too. Because, um, yeah, I know. Cause we we didn't talk about. I was thinking about the the whole um, the hospitals following the NIH protocols, and the mm-hmm. protocols have changed this mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. or in twenty twenty one. They no longer have vitamins on the protocols. Oh, okay. And they they have they have been using IV vitamins in twenty twenty, but in twenty twenty one, that's no longer on the protocols. Right. Hmm. And mm-hmm. um. There's also um, other medications that I think they're finding in different studies are working for COVID, but that's no nowhere near, and you won't find it on the hospital protocols. It's mm. impossible. I actually know people who have been in the hospital who are sneaking ivermectin in Ooh. because through food or drinks or whatever because to their loved ones because mm-hmm. there's no way they're going to get it ordered oh, wow. at the hospital. So it's really interesting. There's a lot of... Um, red tape with certain medications and they're only the hospitals are only sticking to certain medications and certain treatments mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. covid and steroids and whatever else and some of those things might work but i think there's also other things that can and do work that that are not being used and right. that are completely banned you can't even like bring it up there's no way you can't even bring i have friends who've been in the hospital who aren't even allowed to bring their vitamins in from home which is insane i've your own never home vitamins? their own home vitamins i have never seen anything like it because when i worked in the hospital patients could always bring their own vitamins in and they could we could just get the doctor to say like yep they can use their home huh. vitamins we'll get the so pharmacy like, to label it as something from home they're not allowed to use anything like that so if you were if you were getting interviewed by the patient on like what you take at home mm-hmm. and you were like oh i take you know 5,000 IU of mm-hmm. vitamin D, mm-hmm. they'd be like, no. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, they're not. Yes. I have had patients on the phone who I had one just a couple months back who was inpatient on high flow oxygen mm-hmm. 
in the hospital and he was trying to get and his wife was calling in and they were trying to get him on his vitamin D and zinc and vitamin C and um, things that had originally worked for COVID at the beginning of the pandemic that they Mm -hmm. were finding. I mean, in hospitals in New York, they were using an IV for their patients, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But we um, basically, they were completely not allowed to even bring their own home vitamins in. When they asked, they said, okay, well, maybe you can't supply this to us, you know, at the hospital can we bring our own in our own vitamin d or c or whatever in uh-huh. and they were not allowed to do that wow and that is not that that has happened i know at least one patient that that happened with and i also have a friend who was recently inpatient who that happened with as well so i don't know yeah it's been very very interesting i've never seen anything like that um hmm. you would think in a pandemic that anything if somebody wanted could to use their tried. own stuff exactly it wasn't a cost to like a healthcare organization exactly. that they'd be okay with. That's why. Right. Yeah. So you would think that they, that there's, you know, that any treatment would go, anything could be tried. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, remember that article though? It said there's no room for creativity. Yeah. From the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. I literally said that in the middle of the article. No, no room for creativity per right. the New York Times. Which is crazy because, <laughs> yeah, which is crazy to me because Creativity when you're dealing with something new that you have nothing you're, no idea what you're dealing with yeah i feel like you should be allowed to try to throw anything at it to see if it works <laughs> yeah I so mean, you would think I, yeah i would i mean yeah i would think especially when there's so many studies that show like oh this that we're doing is limited effectiveness mm-hmm. well if it's limited effective like Okay, so why do I have to go by what you say is limited? Mm-hmm. And why can't I just do my own thing? Mm-hmm. Aren't exactly. I in charge of my own care? Right, right. Who's in charge of your own care? Am I in charge of my own care or are you in charge of my care? <laughs> right, exactly. That's the question that we have to answer now. Right. There you go. I think and people are teaser. trying to stay out of the <laughs> <laughs> people are trying to stay out of the hospital. Right. Because they basically are giving up right. you know, um, whatever they want to do to mm-hmm. try right. to you know, treat COVID. Something that's really bothered me actually since the beginning is that in urgent care, we're not prescribing medications that could work for Mm. treating COVID. We literally, we, there's some things that we will prescribe. They will do steroids. That was like an off and one thing for a while they were doing it. Then they weren't doing it. Then they Mm -hmm. were doing it again. Um, But they will, we will prescribe steroids. We are no longer doing breathing treatments, which is crazy to me, but they won't do it in our, in our little. You mean like a butyrol and Duanab? Yeah. Stuff like that. We well, used to do breathing treatments, but we won't do them any, we I don't do know if any of those work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We haven't been doing any since the beginning it's of It's kind of weird. Yeah. I don't know if that, I'd have to look that up and uh-huh. do a deep dive into the effectiveness on that. Like, yeah. I mean, albuterol is for bronchoconstriction. Like, right. I don't know. We won't even do that for pa- asthma patients right now, though. Oh, really? Because of the risk with COVID. We won't do any nebulizer treatments at all right now. What about inhalers? COVID. We will prescribe inhalers. Okay, well, yeah. yeah. So we do inhalers with COVID. Um, You know, there's that too. But we also do, uh, if it's a closed circuit, they'll do nebulizers through a closed circuit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a little different. Like you're not going to do that so much in an outpatient thing. Right. That's, yeah. Yeah. So that's why we we Mm -hmm. aren't doing the nebulizers just because of the aerosolized particles with, you know, COVID being a risk factor. So, um, So we stopped doing nebulizer treatments. But we are doing, we're actually prescribing a ton of doxycycline for COVID pneumonia. And it actually seems to be working. Um, we have, usually when I do follow-up calls with patients within a couple of days, they're feeling better. So so that's been mm. a huge positive. 
Hmm. Um, but if they catch it early enough, you know, hmm. before they end up having to go into the hospital for that. Um, but so, yeah, there have been there's definitely, I don't know, kind of a uh, since the beginning, I wished that we would be doing more to offset patients from having to go into the hospital, like early treatment, early medications, whatever might work, mm-hmm. at least trying things. And um, but that, yeah, hasn't been something that we've been seeing much in urgent care that we've yeah, the providers haven't been prescribing much um, for COVID. Hmm. So first time I've seen something where at the beginning we were kind of like, yeah, you have COVID, like. There's not much we can do. If you get worse, <laughs> go to the hospital. You know what I mean? Like we've right. never had something where we weren't treating it. And as as a patient, I imagine there's nothing scarier than hearing a healthcare provider say, oh, you tested positive for this thing. There's nothing we can do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like just, just put that in like an algorithm and make, make, give it variables. Like, oh, we've tested you for X. You have X. We can't do anything for X. Right. Like, imagine how you would feel as that patient, whether it was like, you know, new, old, anything like that's got to be totally demoralizing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like uh, that. Yeah. I really feel for a lot of patients that are coming in and actually, you know, feeling that way. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the biggest thing that I struggle with Mm -hmm. is like, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you know, this. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't really do a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. what happens? And it just feeds into more fear for them, too, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Plus, it's not like these patients aren't, you know, passing word of mouth mm-hmm. around to, like, other people. Like, oh, you know right. what happened to, you know, Uncle so-and-so? Mm-hmm. He came in, and they didn't do shit for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, what do you mean? It's like, oh, they just, you know. And then it's like the common person usually gets everything wrong. Like, if you ever had, like, right. a not healthcare person tell you about a healthcare case and like ask your information they don't know what the hell they're talking about <laughs> it's just oh it's it's painful mm-hmm. like um you know when my mom asked me about random stuff in like healthcare it's just like oh god <laughs> okay first off that wouldn't happen <laughs> but yeah it's it's always brutal because like uh public education on healthcare is so limited. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's, yeah. It's so limited. I've actually, I think I wrote in my bachelor's program somewhere that one of the things that we could do to help uh, clinicians actually a long way mm-hmm. is to actually um, have healthcare classes mm-hmm. as early as high school. Mm-hmm. So I that agree there with could, that. So that there could be something like a, health, a healthcare, like medical terminology. Right. A healthcare, like, you know, introduction to health. Yeah. There's so many broad healthcare fields. Oh, and yeah. And I think absolutely. it should be like a um like a a a education staple mm-hmm. that you have to have to graduate where mm-hmm. you know, we describe what it's like to have a DNR status. Mm-hmm. We descri- we describe what CPR is like. Right. We describe end of life care. Right. Um, you know, and actually have to educate people on this mm-hmm. so that when they inevitably have these things in real life they're prepared mentally sure. to have these sort of conversations mm-hmm. or at least have some sort of education on it and right. maybe a little bit of understanding for what goes on in healthcare and right. you know maybe actually want to get accurately involved 
in healthcare from something, you know, from a field that they were interested in. Right. Instead of just like falling into nursing because right. they didn't know what else to do. Right. Exactly. Or as like a second career or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always thought that was something that was totally lacking in our yeah. education. I know in my high school, you could do anatomy and physiology. I think it was an AMP. Well, sure, sure. I had, a, was, I had AMP as well. Yeah, it was AMP, um, but it was, um, it was like... An elective you could do, but it was an I want to say an AP course or something like that. It was it wasn't something that was really readily available or something mm-hmm. that everyone was educated on. It was something mm-hmm. you could elect to to do. Mm-hmm. I think it would be very helpful for there to be more practical education yeah, in school definitely. about vocation mm-hmm. in general and healthcare. Absolutely, people need to yeah have more education on it. Before they actually are hit with it in their life, you know, because mm-hmm. um, they will be at some point. Um, right. I so. mean, everybody ends up in the hospital at some point right. for something with a family member themselves. Exactly. Right. Um, you know, that's just how it works. But it just seems like we're not interested in telling people how it works. Right. Yeah. Um, it's true. I just I just wish that, you know, some of the first times that we're explaining things to patients wasn't the first time that yeah. they were hearing it. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, exactly. it can be rough. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, education in general is lacking. It's actually something I really love to do with um, currently with doing calls for patients. Because mm. I've been doing that a lot for mm. my job since we haven't been doing the quality assurance. Um, doing the calls have been opportunities for me to educate people. So so people have questions because they'll be like, oh, I tested positive on my PCR send out COVID test. And what does that mean? What do I do? You know, so mm. it's been really interesting to be able to actually educate people um, yeah. over the phone and something that I actually enjoy doing. But I, I think that's one of the favorite parts about um, my career as well as actually like talking to people about mm-hmm. stuff and answering questions. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I actually get asked a, a lot about is uh, CPAPs and BiPAPs. Mm. Like when people with OSA, obstructive mm-hmm. sleep apnea, mm-hmm. have these things. Um they always complain that it's uncomfortable. They don't yeah. want to wear wear it. And I don't know of any other treatment or therapy in healthcare that is refused at the rate that BiPAPs and CPAPs are. Yeah. yeah. And yet when used properly, they almost all the time eliminate most of the obstruction and sleep apnea periods. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's crazy when you look at it, it's like, it's, it sounds silly, but night and day, mm-hmm. like you put on your CPAP, your obstructive sleep apnea goes away. Mm-hmm. You can sleep, right? which just totally helps a whole other part of your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And then you're able to just function better mm-hmm. and people just don't like to wear it because right. it's uncomfortable on their face for a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. oh my god! I actually, had but a it can cause other health issues too mm-hmm. if you just let it go. So yeah, it's... absolutely. I had a patient ask me one time, and this is so telling about how this works. But I had a patient who had a CPAP that they needed to go on, and I was dropping by. I was like, "Hey, do you want to go on your CPAP tonight?" And they go, "Uh, <laughs> can I just take a pill?" I was like, "Wait, what?" We were just and she eating. goes, "I don't want to wear that mask. Right? Isn't there a pill that you can give me to solve this problem?" They literally said it. I was like, wow. <laughs> and I said, I took the time to explain to them like how, you know, OSA worked and how their airway was obstructing and everything. And I was like, didn't they explain 
this to you when you got your, you know, sleep study done? Oh yeah, but I forgot. <laughs> and you're like, oh my god. So I mean, they're clearly not using it very much at home. Yeah, obviously not. <laughs> you're forcing it on them in the hospital. So it's like that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so another area of lacking education. Yeah. Well, tell you what. So we did almost two hours. Yeah. So let's uh. Let's get out of here and we'll uh, look to schedule something else sometime and talk about other stuff. Sounds good. So, all right, Krista, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, bye now, everybody. Neither Boots on the Ground Healthcare nor the host is responsible for the actions of listeners. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the show are for discussion and are not medical advice and do not take the place of medical consult. If you have questions about your healthcare, consult your doctor. All rights reserved.